this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership, and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Doug Reeves. Thank you for being here on the show, Doug. Welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This month, we are focused on leading and learning during the pandemic. Uh, change is a common topic discussed in education, but typically it's not thrust upon us in this fashion. With this in mind, we couldn't think of anyone better with whom to have this conversation with about change than Doug Reeves. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Doug? Sure thing, Joe. I don't think our audience needs a bio introduction of Doug Reeves, but we will do that anyway. Douglas Reeves is the founder of Creative Leadership Solutions, a nonprofit with the mission to improve educational opportunities for students throughout the world using creative solutions for leadership, policy, teaching, and learning. Dr. Reeves is also the founder of DouglasReeves.com, changeleaders.com and has created a nonprofit called finishthedissertation.org, which helps doctoral students finish their dissertation via, via phone, Skype, or personal conferences. Dr. Reeves has worked with education, business, nonprofit, and government organizations throughout the world. The author of more than 30 books and more than 80 articles on leadership and organizational effectiveness, he has twice been named to the Harvard University Distinguished Author Series and was named the Brock International Laureate for his contributions to education. Dr. Reeves received both the Distinguished Service Award from the National Association of Secondary School Principals and the Parents' Choice Award for his writing for children and parents. His career of work in professional learning led to the contribution to the Field Award from the National Staff Development Council. For his international work, Dr. Reeves was named the William Walker Scholar by the Australian Council of Educational Leaders. Okay, Doug, we want to dive into this conversation about change. You write extensively on change leadership. You've, you have a book coming out. We've read your books on change. We typically in education think of change in schools as something that the principal does or a school leader creates. And we do that. We institute change to adjust to the various needs and demands or to improve student achievement. However, right now during COVID-19, everything around that has been appended everything in schools, we're all forced to change in countless ways. So here's our first question for you. Regardless of the situation, what do you see as the primary leadership skills necessary for a school leader to have to successfully navigate change? And has that changed in any way, given the recent events? Well, thanks very much. It really has changed a lot. We're recording now in November of 2020. And uh, if you've watched the news and been in schools as we all have, uh, there is a record number of failures for this fall semester of 2020. And what that record number of, fall, uh, of, of failures is going to lead to is I think a dropout crisis if we don't do something about it. Uh, so to answer your question directly, COVID has changed things and specifically what leaders need is a sense of urgency and a bias for action. That means you can't wait 
for buy-in. You can't wait for focus groups. You can't wait for surveys. The building is on fire. We need to evacuate the building and you don't have to ask a lot of people's opinions about that. Uh, and my fear is to tie this in a bow is that if we don't do things right now to reduce the failure rate in the fall of 2020, then we've got some of those students who particularly in high school having accumulated five, six, seven failures aren't gonna come back in the spring of 2021. And that is gonna lead to a national dropout crisis that is not just a one year or two year issue, that is a 50 year issue. Because when students drop out of school, they have a lifetime of lower employment, higher involvement in the criminal justice system, a lower economic opportunities, greater poverty, greater healthcare costs. It is a crisis. And we need leaders who, who are going to stop waiting around for buy-in and start taking action. Doug, I really appreciate the uh, bias for action. I think that's a, a nice uh, way to, to frame the thinking around that. To dig a little deeper and further into this, is there a way to still get collaboration, get minds around the table and move with urgency and speed, but have the right people at the table? There, there is, uh, but it's not gonna be universal. Uh, one of the things that John Cotter, who's really you know, the leading change uh, theorist of the last 40 years, uh, a lot of people are fond of quoting Professor Cotter in his 1980 writings. A fewer people quote him in his 21st century writings where he talks about what he got wrong. And one of the things that he got wrong is that uh, the guiding coalition in many places has been kind of this legislative body that is all inclusive and every stakeholder is at the table. They're all defending their own interests and constituents. And when that happens, change grinds to a halt. And we don't have that luxury right now. And so where Cotter and I uh, have come together is to say, now you need a much smaller coalition that is composed of people who have leadership abilities. They may be classroom educators, they may be building leaders or district leaders, but they wanna take action right now. And, and just to illustrate with, with a couple of very specific examples, because I don't want this to sound very philosophical. There are things that we can do right now before the winter of 2021, such as, for example, changing automatic failure policies. In some districts, 10 unexcused absences means an automatic F in a class. Shoot, we've had hundreds of thousands of kids that had 10 unexcused absences in September and October. If we let those automatic failure policies continue, we're gonna to continue to have record number of Fs. So we can repeal those and suspend those. It's an emergency. Every superintendent ought to have the ability to suspend those policies. Secondly, the number one cause of Fs is missing work. That is directly contrary to evaluating students based upon proficiency which is what, at least in the US, we've been doing for more than 20 years, evaluating on proficiency, not compliance. And yet you look at the underlying cause of failures, it's punishing students in December of 2020 for work that they were missing in September of 2020. That makes no sense. I know it's tried and true, but we've got to get rid of it. And thirdly, getting rid of the average. Most computerized rating systems default to the average. So no matter how hard a kid works in December of 2020, They'll still be punished for September and October of 2020. We need to unplug those defaults so that we evaluate students at the end of the semester. If we would do those three things, getting rid of automatic failure, grading on proficiency, not compliance, and focusing on grading at the time the grade is awarded, not the average, we will have a dramatic reduction in failures. And we could end this miserable year of 2020 with a giant win for schools and for districts around the country. 
That's great. Thank you for that. Very specific. So our audience always loves that when we get down to the granular aspects of it. I mean, you did talk about Cotter leading change. We always like to point people to accelerate whenever that leading change book comes up because it did um, it did bring some thinking forward um, for Cotter. So you talked about urgency and bias for action. I wonder if there aren't other leadership skills that you could point to for this pivot from leaders who have been taught to build consensus and buy-in, and now all of a sudden they have to do this other thing, move fast and break stuff. There's a chapter in my book called The, the Myth of Buy-in, and, and it really is jarring because people are so used to a model that says, well, first bring in the inspirational speaker in the auditorium, and then everybody has buy-in, and then we'll put our toe in the water and maybe try some pilot tests. And then maybe someday, somehow we'll have some evidence we don't have the luxury of that time. And besides, it hasn't worked for, for the last 40 years. What we need to do is change that sequence in which we do it, gather evidence of impact, and then you get buy-in. And I can tell you, I've worked with, with classroom educators. I've worked with very strong unions where that actually worked, where they said, look, we, we're tired of having people patronize us, making some emotional appeal for buy-in. We want to see the beef. We want to see that the stuff really works. So for example, in San Bernardino, California, with great union cooperation, we had high school math and science teachers step up, say, "We're, you know, Doug may be crazy, but it's worth an experiment. And so they, I said, look, I'm not asking for buy-in, I'm just asking for an experiment. And then when making things like we talked about, getting rid of the average, they stopped grading homework, stopped using the zero and the 100 point scale, pretty basic stuff that a lot of people know about, but they're afraid to do in one semester, a more than 80% reduction in the DF rate. In one semester, they were able to show how culture had improved, fewer tardies, better attendance, better classroom engagement, honest conversations with teachers about what students knew and didn't know. In, a, in a, one of their sister high schools, they reduced three sections of repeaters, which meant three new sections of electives. When, when the teachers can stand up and say, hey, this works, that's how you get buy-in. It's not buy-in first and then try it. It's do it, show the evidence, and then you get buy-in. Doug, can you speak to how the teachers and the administrators even reconcile this in their own minds to a degree? So like the zero on the 100-point scale, um, the average, you know, there, there comes this counter-argument immediately that, well, actually, well, you're changing the variable, so of course grades now have improved. But you know, what you're saying is they saw this as evidence of learning, not just necessarily completion, but it improved other areas of the school itself. Can you speak to how they reconcile that? Because that is something we definitely run up against in here. Every time you talk about improving grading practices, you'll have somebody say, well, wait a minute, that's just grade inflation. You're just giving away grades. The nice thing about working with these colleagues in California, who, as I say, were hardcore math and science teachers, the, the classic people with their arms folded, their legs out, yeah, tell me, professor, something that I don't already know. So classic resistance. The great thing about working with them is that they were very rigorous in their approach. So they had three years of final exam scores. And if it were grade inflation, you should have seen grades go up and final exam scores go down. But in fact, what they saw was grades went up and final exam scores went up, which showed them that this was not grade inflation, it was work inflation. And the real key had to do with not grading homework. 
because thanks Khan Academy, everybody can turn in perfect homework now and still not know the quadratic equation. When, when, they could, when they knew that they could have honest conversations about what they didn't know and did know, if you walked into Mr. Dahl's class, you'd see every surface. I mean, he is a fire marshal arrest waiting to happen. Every surface covered with paper or whiteboards and the students are out of their chair, on their feet, doing the actual work there where both Mr. Dahl and his fellow uh, students can, can say, let's fix this right now. Let's catch the thinking here right now. So that was legitimate improvement in learning. And then when they take the same final that they had taken before, they could see performance getting better and better and better. So that's, that's kind of big idea number one. It really is not great inflation, it's work inflation. Kids work harder and they don't cheat when they, when they know that they can come in and have honest conversations. Secondly, and perhaps just as important as what you said, there's, there's also non-grade issues that have a lot to do with making teaching just a more satisfying profession. Look, I, I want to have students who can tell me what they don't know. And if they're scared to death to do that, we never have honest conversations. I want students to be more engaged in my class and show up on time and treat each other civilly. That makes teaching a more satisfying profession. So there's a lot of non-academic social and climate things that, that pertained as well. Uh, as well as, you know, I wanna teach more electives and teach few, fewer sections of repeaters. Um, so this is not just about, you know, what's good for the poor children. This is good for all of us, including, uh, including all the adults in the building as well. That's a fantastic um, story too about change in a school district. You had said that it's worth an experiment, right? So my question is, even what, what, what comes even before that from a leadership skill or a conversation to get to people to even to a point where they're willing to accept an experiment versus the status quo, what they know, what they're comfortable with. Those are the places of the, the hinge for the conflict. Well, I, I think we have to decide what is a kind of philosophy issue and what is a, what I would call a safety and value issue. There's plenty of disagreements that we can have on philosophy, and we can argue Vygotsky and Piaget all day long. But what we would not argue about, I would hope, would be safety and value uh, issues. And anybody, for example, who's been through a school renovation project knows, hey, you, you can go here, you can't go there. If you go there, you got to wear a hard hat. It's not a debate. It's not a matter of personal preference. More pertinent to this conversation of safety and value issues is that it wasn't that long ago that corporal punishment was allowed in schools. To our national shame, 19 states still do allow corporal punishment. But I'm willing to bet in the minds of most of our listening audience, if they saw an adult raise a hand to strike a child, they would not say, oh gee, that's just a matter of academic freedom and personal taste. They'd stop it because beating children is a matter of safety and values. We don't allow that. Uh, years ago, the teacher's lounge used to be a gas chamber because everybody smoked. We don't allow that anymore. Now. I only raise this because for people who liked to smoke in the teacher's lounge, they did not have buy-in on the day that they stopped allowing smoking. For people who believe with their heart, and I know they're out there, that striking children is a good way to instill discipline, they didn't have buy-in when we said, you can't beat kids anymore. So that's the way that I feel about some of these grading issues that lead to academic failure. It's academic corporal punishment. The zero on the 100 point scale, the use of the average, that's academic corporal punishment. And if you would not allow adults to strike children with physical corporal punishment, 
you should not allow academic corporal punishment. I'm not asking for buy-in. That is a safety and value issue. Doug, that's powerful. And it's it's very poignant. And I think it's it's very clear academic corporal punishment. I haven't heard it worded um, that quite that way or that direct or even with that much uh, intensity. So I appreciate that. If we wanted to dig deeper into this and you know, we have others that we wanna give work towards and dig into this to have evidence towards, you know what? This isn't just something we're talking about. It's not philosophical. There is evidence to suggest this works. Um, where would we go next to find some of that work, maybe beyond some of your own? Sure. There's what I've tried to do is is always uh, synthesize the research of others. So I deeply admire uh, the work that a lot of other people. Ken O'Connor, for example, from whom I just got an email the other day, his a splendid uh, book on this subject. Um, you know, my, my book uh, Fast Grading is is a resource that helps. Uh, also talk about how do we have conversations with the community. Um, and, and so uh, Rick Wormley has done some great work on this as well. Uh, there's a number of really fine authors out there, but also I'm mindful of the fact that money is tight for everybody. So let me suggest some free resources. Um, there's free videos and free articles at creativeleadership.net. The videos are very short, but you'll have them on a lot of these subjects that we've talked about. There's a whole series on grading, also a whole series on creativity. And I mentioned that because I've been worried that during COVID and the shutdown, uh, creativity is, is one thing that's being lost. Uh, and so that gives you some ideas about how to promote creativity in, in the classroom. A number of, of free videos and articles on leadership as well. So creativeleadership.net has lots of free stuff, um, nothing to buy. Yeah, thank you for that. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, and so as we pivot to resources, we also want to ask you a couple leadership questions here. Um, what's the one thing that you believe people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? Well, th this was true in 2019, but it is triply true during a, a shutdown that many of our listeners are experiencing. Um, it, it may sound, you know, sentimental and trite, to talk about relationships and to talk about loving your kids. But if ever there were a time when kids need relationships and the un, uh, unconditional love that teachers provide uh, without judgment, now is the time. So to be really specific, uh, I, I know of a school administrator in Wisconsin uh, who was desperately worried in September, October about the high absence rates. This is a large middle school with about 750 kids. She and her colleagues, social workers, counselors, school administrators, made home visits. Now out of that 750 kids, they have a grand total of three who are chronically absent. Now around the country, I'm dealing with schools that have 30, 40, 50% chronic absenteeism. They've got three kids out of 750. It can be done, but it takes that unconditional outreach to kids. We're here not to discipline you. We're here not to threaten you. We're here because we love you and care about you. And they literally are doing that from a snow-covered sidewalk to keep appropriate social distance to go out to their homes. That's what we need. And I would also say that the most <clears throat> underused piece of technology is the old-fashioned telephone. <coughs> Pardon me. We, we do have, um, obviously, a lot of people using Zoom and Google Meets and WebEx and all that sort of stuff, which is fine when it works. But seriously, uh, for a lot of students for whom technology has not been working, let's not have this all or nothing idea. Personal one-to-one -one phone calls, 
to not just talk about homework, but to talk about their kids. How is it going? You got the food that you need. What I've, what I've called question zero. Before we have questions about learning and assessment and everything else, question zero is, what do you need to do in order to learn, to make sure that students and families get the support and resources that they need? That's the number one thing that I think every leader needs to do. And when I say leaders, I'm talking about teacher leaders, administrative leaders at every level, um, and in everybody who serves kids. I don't think there's been a more appropriate time for us to look at activities and outcomes, Doug, to realize that if the activities aren't leading to the outcomes, then we have to ask ourselves, what next? Yeah. You know, it, we can't be satisfied with just the inputs. And I think these are some of the really tough conversations going on in schools and districts now about not being satisfied with some of the work that usually does result in student achievement or does result in involvement where here you hear a story of a, a principal really going above and beyond um, to get, get things out there. Well, and, and if we have some policymakers listening, and I think you've raised a critical issue, you have raised the issue when we talk about inputs as well as outputs, that is the Achilles heel of our accountability systems. And frankly, I'm not gonna wait for the federal government to get this right. We've spent 20 years looking at outputs in form of test scores, attendance, and that sort of thing. And the only inputs, of course, have been demographic characteristics, mm -hmm. ethnicity, language, and, and poverty. And if that's the only input you look at, you'll just assume that that's the only cause for the effect. But my research is pretty clear that you can have high poverty and high levels of minority enrollment and also have high success. So if that's true, there has to be something else like teaching and leadership that are the relevant inputs. So the silver lining to me is maybe at last our country can have kind of a comprehensive accountability system that doesn't just look at outputs, but looks at the activities of teachers and leaders. And, and we'll shout and praise to the rooftops, those at work and pull the plug on those that don't. One of the things that I've been learning, and, and here's the downside of all the CARES funding coming to schools, is that it's the dance of the vendors. People will go out and they'll buy this and buy that and buy everything but you know what they can't buy is a 25-hour day. So, so they're dumping all these programs, particularly instructional technology, onto teachers who don't have time to use them. And so I'm seeing millions of dollars spent on programs that teachers simply do not use. So in addition to praising leadership and teaching actions that do work, I hope a good accountability system will let us pull the plug at last on those that don't. Excellent points. I truly appreciate that. I could use an extra hour in my day. Um, even if I just used it to sleep, um, yeah. but that, I, I would appreciate that. Doug, this leads well into our next question because I think it, it speaks to maybe some of what you would like to see done that you could have some serious impact on. And you've had a, a stellar career and a lot of amazing accomplishments. What's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? Oh, I, I hope that if anything, I am a lifelong learner and from a family of, of lifelong learners. Uh, so uh, like a lot of people, I know that I could do a better job of learning instructional technology. Um, I, I will tell you that at, at my advanced age, I started taking uh, piano lessons again because I, I think that the arts are undervalued and I, and I have to do more than just talk about it and write books about creativity. I have to model what that means. And I've, and I've done some case studies of amazing teachers in the core subjects who explicitly have integrated 
music into their curriculum. And I'd like to be able to model that more effectively than I have in the past. That's just a couple of examples. It's very interesting example. Um, we typically get something with the arts when we ask that question. The number of people, Joe, who have told us that they want to learn to play the piano alone is, uh, is very interesting. Maybe a third of the people who answer that question. So it's something about the brain and something about learning um, and just that creativity, that application. I love you say you can't just preach it. You got you to gotta take it on yourself. Let me tell you, it makes me very empathetic with students. Because I, I used to be a fairly proficient pianist in the day, and and so when you let your muscles in your hands atrophy and your eyes atrophy and your brain atrophy, it's hard to go back to when you're used to playing, you know, Chopin etude to go back to play a Scarlatti sonata that is kid stuff uh, requires a big dose of humility, but it is immensely satisfying um, and something that, um, as I say, we need to practice what we preach. And, and to your audience, I would just say. Uh, People who are, who are both visual artists and, and uh, performing artists have been devastated by the pandemic. So if you've got a little bit of disposable income that you could hire somebody to be your piano teacher or your clarinet teacher, they could use it right now and you can get some top rate professional teaching uh, that'll help you and help your, your arts community. Yep. And it's also a reminder that a lot of times we are the experts at the things that we teach and the people on the other side, you know, they're, they're the learners. And so they're fumbling around with it and we need to have uh, a level of empathy around that. So thank you for the reminder because the math teacher knows the math and the English teacher knows the English. So it also leads us to our next question about your growth. What's one thing that has led to or continues to support your growth as a leader that others might be able to replicate? Well, I, a couple of things. I mean, like every good teacher learns from students. And so I'm lucky enough to have colleagues who, who are strong-willed and are willing to challenge me, tell me when I'm wrong, uh, and, and tell me when I need to get better. And I value that more than anything uh, because I think oftentimes – people in leadership positions, it's too easy to, to let the uh, adulation of the crowd uh, make you think that you're better than you are. So, so to have, uh, have people who will uh, call you when you make a mistake and challenge you to get better, that's incredibly helpful. I'm grateful for that. I'm a voracious reader um, and like, would like to, as the footnotes in my book suggest, uh, give credit where credit is due and not assume that I invented these things. Uh, but hopefully do a pretty decent job of synthesizing it. But I, I always try to stay ahead of the, of, of the literature. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you uh, one great resource that I hope our listeners are doing, and maybe he's already been a guest in your podcast. If not, he should be. And that's Kim Marshall, the uh, editor of the Marshall Memo, uh, one of the most widely circulated educational public, uh, publications in the planet uh, with thousands of articles. Um, and it is the go-to resource uh, not only every week to put things on my desk that I need to learn about, but also uh, to dive deeply into subjects uh, that I thought I knew a lot about. But every time I think, gee, I'm a pretty well-read guy and, and I'm, I'm a pretty decent researcher, every Tuesday morning I get a reminder of the things that I haven't read yet. Um, and so that's another good dose of humiliation for, for me that we could all use. Doug, if you don't mind, and, and we get this question from a lot of our audience members to dig into the, the fine details. When you say you're a voracious reader, how much would you say you spend a day reading? 
I, I actually track that. Uh, I, I'm very, because time is the only asset that, that we have. Um, I track how much time I spend learning, how much time I spend writing and that sort of thing. Um, and I do it all the time. Uh, almost all of my reading is, uh, is audible.com. So if I'm in, in waiting at the doctor's office, if I'm waiting at a, at a uh, waiting outside for a taxi or something, I'm if waiting in line at the airport, I'm always listening to something. It's easily a couple of hours a day. If I, if I were waiting for just available reading time, it would probably be only you know, 20 minutes. And, and don't underestimate how valuable 20 minutes can be. But one reason I, I get through an awful lot of books as well as a long form journalism in, in journal and magazine articles is that I, I make aggressive use of, of Audible. TJ and I are both Audible fans as well, and, and Libby and some others, but Audible is great also because it allows you to easily capture key uh, text. And I wanted to ask you that, if, if you're using it later on for research or you want to go back to it, how do you then track what you listen to and, and translate that into learning versus the passive act of just listening? So I, I do that a lot, and, and it's not unusual that I will either re-listen to a book, or if it's something that I want to quote directly, um, I just I bookmark it on Audible, and then I'll get the actual book. I typically use Kindle, um, so I can I can quote it exactly. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction my volunteer work on finishthedissertation.com. So let me just tell you one one way of capturing for anybody who, who's thinking about writing a book, writing an article, writing a dissertation. This is a time and money saving idea. It's called Zotero, Z-O-T-E-R-O, Zotero.org. It is free. And every time I read a book, an article, anything, it goes into Zotero, full citation. And, and I, I suspect a lot of your listeners may, you know, someday I'd like to write for Kappen or Ed Leadership or, or, or maybe a book or something. We were talking about writing books before we started this broadcast. The, the money and time saver is this, not only is it free, but once you put the citation in there and you can also copy and paste the direct quotes, then when it comes time to write the reference list, which for the books that you and I are writing can be a multi-hour pain in the rear, you hit one button, reference list. And then it said, what reference list would you like? APA, Chicago, and, and, and you choose from a list of 20, bam, your reference list is done. Now, for a program, you can spend a lot of money for people and programs to do that. Spend zero on Zotero and it'll do it for you. Wow, that's powerful. Um, I can see TJ's thought bubble right now uh, and he's excited. He's very excited. Um, this has been uh, powerful and it's reassuring too. I don't wanna digress too much um, and we, we, we know we're limited on time as well. I'm reassured to hear that you buy it also on Kindle. I was just listening to a book on Audible and I actually went online on Amazon, found it um, for pretty cheap use and bought it because I did not feel that I was spending enough time with some of the activities. I, I just didn't realize the book had so many activities associated with it. And for me to learn what it was really telling me, I just needed a hard copy. And I was able to get the book online, I think for like $3. It, it, I, a lot of people predicted that, that the use of both electronic devices, both uh, for voice and for uh, electronic rather than print would, would hurt the publishing industry. Um, I had lunch with a, a major publisher and she pulls out this list of every year, 
from about 1990 to the present, the death of books, the death of publishing. And every year she says, there's more books published. There's more content out there. Uh, that, that all the technology that we're using has not in fact killed, uh, killed the industry. The industry is changing. Um, and you know, maybe on, on another broadcast, we had to talk about uh, what aspiring writers do. I, I host a writer's group every first Saturday of the month. And, and uh, it, it is changing a lot, but I, I just want to encourage our listeners who's, who have wondered, should I write an article? Should I write a book? Yes, do it. Cause you've got an important story to tell. And, and you're right because you got something to say. Incredible, incredible. Thank you, Doug. We want to ask, uh, you mentioned Cotter earlier, that switching from what he used to think and, and how he changed on some of his philosophy towards and, and his, what his research led to with regarding change. What's one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore? So this... Uh, First of all, thank you for the question. M many of your readers may know that that is the title of a wonderful book called I Used to Think and Now I Think uh, that has people like uh, Dick Gilmore and Howard Gardner and other people in that. And I always, uh, when I've asked the same question of audiences, I've said, you know what, if Gilmore and Gardner are willing to say, I used to think this and now I think that, then you'd better be able to say it too. Because when people say, hey, what I learned in graduate school, that's it and I've stopped learning ever since then, is a prescription for a petrified brain. So let me give a real specific example of in my change leadership research uh, that I changed. Uh, one of the things that I've always had a beef with, with, with vendors is kind of a binary approach. I did the program or I didn't. And I said, look, there's degrees of implementation, level one, level two, level three, level four. And my hypothesis was, was that as you proceed through these different levels, from level one to level two, you get better. From two to three, you get better. From three to four, you get better. Turned out that when I studied 36 different programs, I was dead wrong. And the real, uh, pro the real uh, progression of this, in fact, I'm writing a book right now with John Hattie on this very subject of implementation, is you go from level one to two, nothing happens. Two to three, nothing happens. Only when you get to the highest level of implementation do you have an impact on student achievement? And the real importance of that research is that if it were nice and neat and linear, like I thought, then you'd have this constant wonderful feedback loop that would keep encouraging the leader, encouraging the leader, but you don't. When you go from one to two to three and nothing happens, people say, well, shoot, that didn't work. Let's go buy another program. And they never get to the highest level. And so they could buy the new program, one to two to three, nothing happens. Well, that didn't work. Let's go buy another program. And that's what leads to initiative fatigue. And I had to admit, I was wrong on this assumption of linearity, one, two, three, four. And what I learned by being wrong was the value of persistence to get all the way to, to level four. It really reminds me of the change curve. Exactly. Almost like, you know, there's that, you know, even denial and depression before experimentation and ultimately integration. You kind of have to stick it out. Um, to see the effects of the actual changes. Yes. Well, this has been fantastic. And what I know our listeners are going to love is like the little tidbits, the granular pieces, the Zoteros, the audibles, um, the mentions of the books. 
Um, and we always say that that uh, leadership might be complex, but it doesn't have to be complicated. So you've given a lot of, of, of great advice here. Doug, is there anything else that you would like to add today for our listeners as we wrap up? Well, as we come up on the holidays, um, I thought, uh, and I know people are, are bummed because we don't have a lot of face-to-face -face relationship with uh, families. And, and when you spend all your professional life on Zoom, probably the last thing you want to do is, is have more Zoom in the holidays. But I can tell you that in our family, we have Zoom game nights, we have Zoom check-ins with families and, and uh, new babies and everything else. And, and I hope our, our listeners would do that. Also, sometimes it's refreshing to read something outside of education. Um, so right now, um, uh, I'm in the middle of Robert Putnam's splendid new book called um, Up, Up, Upswing. And it is, uh, he, many of our listeners will recognize he's, he's the one who wrote Bowling Alone about social isolation. Now Putnam is saying that we're actually coming back together as a country. And after 2020 and, you know, in, in many times when I think people felt that we were being pulled apart, it is wonderful to hear the evidence and hear his appeal that we really are coming together. So Robert Putnam is the author, Upswing is the book, and it's a, it's a real opportunity to uh, maybe end the year with a smile and, and make some good use of your uh, downtime during vacation. Thank you for that. We'll link to it in the show. Um, and we really appreciate your time. There you have it, another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog at theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, and video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed this One Thing series on change, leadership, urgency, and so much more with our guest, Doug. Doug, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.